Our scripture today is Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. All right. Thank you, Christina. And thank you, Michael. Uh, So this week, uh, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention is going to be held in Anaheim, California. Uh, There's a lot of buzz going going on about this time this week because there's been some scandals uh, going on there. Uh, There was an investigation that uncovered uh, that some ministry leaders either did some really bad things or covered up some bad things. I should say I'm not picking on the Southern Baptists at at all. Uh, They have a lot of great churches. They do a lot of great things, uh, but they are in the midst of dealing with a serious issue, and they're recovering from some serious failures in their leadership. Uh, and many of you probably know, I mentioned a few weeks ago, just to be fair, to pick on one group, let's pick on another, our own tribe. Uh, in Acts 29, the church planning network that we're a part of, uh, there was a very popular podcast out uh, last year uh, about one of our founders who, uh, during his time of leadership, really hurt a lot of people in the church and on staff, uh, and a lot of bad things happened there. Uh, and it wouldn't be difficult for me to spend the rest of my time this morning just telling stories about churches or pastors, ministry leaders, or whoever who have failed in spectacular ways and caused 
a lot of, of, of problems. Um, and unfortunately, this isn't something new. You know, in some ways, what's new is that we know about everything because of maybe social media or just the way the word spreads now. So what's new is that we're just more familiar with what's going on all over the place. But what's not new is people in ministry leadership positions failing. And I just even want to say, no, that I'm not immune from this, so please pray for me that I don't shipwreck my faith and ministry and everything else. Uh, I think a lot of people uh, could think they're immune to this kind of stuff, and none of us are. And I, I remember right when I got into ministry, like right after college, I was talking to some older guys in the ministry, and they were telling stories about people on like the, the national level that, that were kind of leaders in the whole, uh, you know, over the United States in the ministry. Uh, and there was a series, I think it was maybe three national leaders uh, who all fell in some, in some way. Uh, they, they, they made a wreck of, of their lives. And for some of them, their, their ministry, uh, for all of them, their ministry ended. For some of them, their marriages ended. And I just remember thinking, like, this is so weird. How can people become so high up in ministry positions and end up failing in such serious ways? But, you know, it wouldn't take too long. I mean, probably a decade into ministry, I, I had my own surprising and shocking stories of people who were in higher up positions of ministry and leadership who, who, who had really big uh, scandals or failures that disqualified them from ministry, uh, and in some even turned away from the faith. And that was kind of shocking to me. Like, how can this person who I've looked up to, who I've benefited from, do something so terribly bad, in some cases, some, something so terribly wicked? So anyway, these things aren't new. This happens you have people really high up in ministry situations, church leadership, whatever, and they fail in serious ways, and it's really disruptive to either the, the church or the institution or, or whatever it is they're leading. <clears throat> and a lot of times there's a recovery period that is difficult. The disciples, in, in, in this time here, in, in our passage now, they're dealing with a situation with Judas. You know, we know Judas, he's just the bad guy. That's, we immediately think of him being the bad guy. But the disciples, the apostles, they did not think of him in this way. Like, he was one of them. He was one of the best. He was the best of the best. He was the cream of the crop. He was one of the 12. And so I, I doubt that any of them thought that Judas would be the one that would betray Jesus. And I, I would imagine to, to the 11 others that it was a total shocker that Judas did that. Just the very idea that one of the 12, one of the 12, not one of the 70 or one of the 120 that were there, one of the 12, one of the main guys would betray Jesus the way he did. But he did in fact betray him and Jesus was crucified because of it. And now the disciples are in a unique moment. Jesus died, was resurrected. He had been teaching them in person for 40 days about the kingdom of God he just ascended into heaven, and they were waiting as instructed on the Holy Spirit to come, but the Spirit had not come yet. And there is this 10-day window between Jesus ascending and the Spirit coming at Pentecost, the next chapter, next week. There's this 10-day window, and, and, and they're waiting. And one of the things that they're doing is trying to recover from Judas. The other thing they're doing is devoting themselves to prayer. So, so the two things I want to hone in on today are the disciples and how they were devoted to prayer, and then secondly, how they uh, recovered from Judas. So first, they were devoted to prayer. Look at verse 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. 
Just fun fact, that's a little bit less than a mile. It's kind of the, the Sabbath journey rule. They don't walk more than a mile, so it's not too far away. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James and Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Jesus ascends to heaven. They come back to Jerusalem. They go to the upper room where they were staying. And some of the women were with them, but Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then the brothers of Jesus, which is interesting because the brothers of Jesus were former skeptics. And so they're all on the same page with what's happening. They're all, they've been with Jesus for 40 days. He's teaching them. And we read that they were devoting themselves to prayer. And, and they must have felt this heavy weight of what Jesus was calling them to do. Because basically what Jesus was calling them to do was to take over his ministry. And that's the kind of ministry that got Jesus killed. Like the, the, the Jews were against them. The Romans were against them. And, and when Jesus was arrested after Judas betrayed them, they all ran away afraid and scared. And then even Peter famously denied Jesus. But... Jesus resurrected, told them to be his witnesses, and he didn't ask them to be his witnesses. He told them, you will be my witnesses. It was, like, it was like a prophecy. It was going to happen. So you can imagine the, the mixed feelings that they would have. So they, they, on, one, on one hand, they probably had this otherworldly confidence that this is all true. We've been hanging out with God. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. We, we were his 12. We were his guys. We've been hanging out with him. And so they probably had this otherworldly confidence in, in, in what they were called to do. But at the same time, they probably had this sense that the whole world is against them. The Jews were against them. That was their family, their tribe. They were all against them. The Romans were against them. And so what do you do when you have strong confidence in God, but you are intimidated and discouraged by the reality staring at you in the face? When you have that dynamic in play, you pray. And that's what they did. What did Jesus do the night before, uh, the, the night he was betrayed, about to go to the cross? He prayed. What did the early church do when they gathered together? See, in this in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts 9, Christians are described as those who call on the name of the Lord. In Acts 12, Peter is busted out of prison by an angel, and he goes to where the Christians are. And you know what they're doing late at night? They're together praying. So the people of God should be marked by prayer. We should pray by ourselves alone, and we should pray together. And, and this is something that's been lacking in my life that I need to repent from. And I'll, I'll tell you some of my process, because sometimes you do things that are wrong, and you can back them up. And some things, and I, I had, this is one of those things where I felt like I was wrong, and I had a verse to back myself up. But one of the ways uh, I, I would kind of reason out my lack of corporate prayer uh, was from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when Jesus talks about prayer on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, go into your, the, your room, to your closet, shut the door, and your father who sees you in heaven, who sees, you, sees what you do in secret, will reward you. And so there's this, this, to me, Jesus pushing this idea of personal prayer, praying alone. You don't need to be out there praying to be seen. But Jesus wasn't saying that you should only pray alone. He, he was correcting the form of prayer that was pretentious, that was out there just to be seen and to make, make a show of it. He wasn't saying we shouldn't pray corporately. The scriptures teach both. You should be praying privately 
and corporately. And that should be the normative Christian experience. So the disciples devoted themselves to prayer. And one thing that you would imagine they would be praying about during this 10-day window is what to do in regards to Judas. He's left them. And, and what do they do next? So my second point, recovering from Judas. Let's look at verse 15 to 20. Verse 15 says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was murdered, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the, the field was called in their own language, uh, Akodama, that is the field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Now, one thing to note real quick, um, this passage can be contra- con- controversial, because it has this description of Judas's death that is different from a, a different place in, in, in the Gospels. Uh, in the Gospels, it says that Judas went out and, hang, and, and hung himself. But here, it says that he fell headlong, burst up in the middle of, of uh, and, his, and his bowels gushed out. And so anyway, it seems like there's a contradiction here, but this is one of those things where there's not so much a contradiction as much as like two things, or one thing can be described two different ways. What most likely happened is Judas did hang himself. He fell down off the cliff and he burst open afterward after that. That's just a little side note. Don't want to spend much time there, but that might come up from time to time. Back to Acts chapter 1. Peter has this revelation of what they should do, and the revelation came from, apparently, Peter meditating on Psalm 69. So Peter believed that according to Psalm 69, Judas should be replaced. But since this person would be elevated to the place of being an apostle, it couldn't just be anybody. Uh, it, It needed to have some criteria, and we see that criteria in verse 21 and 22. So the, the, the person who's going to be an apostle will need to be someone who was with them during all the ministry of Jesus, from the time of his baptism to the time of his ascension. And, he, and two, he needed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, someone who had seen uh, Jesus resurrected. Now, side note, this is why we reject the idea of the modern-day apostle or, or anyone adding to the Scripture. Because they needed to have been with Jesus. They needed to fit this criteria that the apostles pointed out. And so one place where this will be relevant for us uh, is with Mormons, with this Joe Joe Smith having this revelation. So they claim that Joe Smith had this revelation from God, and then he added to the Bible with this this book of Mormon. Uh, But he does not fit the apostolic criteria. And I don't know, Joe Smith, the founder of Mormonism, maybe he did have some kind of vision, maybe it was demonic, maybe it was a dream, I don't know what it was, but we can be sure of this, is that Joe Smith does not fit the criteria to be an apostle, therefore he cannot add to Scripture. The canon of Scripture was closed uh, when the apostles died. So God did not wait 800 years to give this revelation to Joe Smith or anybody else that wants to add to Scripture. And if we're going to talk about something that's new, like in the Reformation, they might say Martin Luther came up with something new. He didn't come up with anything new. He just went back to what was old. So Martin Luther wasn't trying to find something new and fresh or put a new spin on something. He was trying to teach. He was trying to go back to the apostles' teaching that had been lost. And so as believers, we need to be on the lookout and not get hungry for something new. We need to be looking for stuff that's really old. 
We, we need to go constantly going back to the apostles' teaching, to what they taught, and not looking for something new, something fresh. And look, we're in an interesting time where there's all these, uh, there, there's all the, the media. You have, you have blogs and podcasts and all that. And there's so much bad teaching out there, and it is usually packaged in super winsome ways that with people that are really likable, really funny, really down to earth, and then they'll just kind of sneak in some kind of garbage that seems to be, hey, it's time for the church to do something new. And look, the, the church can be lame and whatever. We have our faults and all that, but we just don't need to look for something new in the sense of teaching. We need to be faithful to go back to what's old. So, side notes, done, back to replacing G- Judas. So the criteria they had, the criteria, the criteria they had for choosing new apostles had been um, uh, made known, and Joseph and Matthias were then uh, were then chosen. And then they prayed, and they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So problem solved. Judas is replaced, ready to move forward. But you have to understand that Judas, for the disciples was an absolute crisis. I mean, it was a shocker. It just blew their minds that this happened. But you also need to understand that it was most definitely not a crisis for Jesus. Not at all. Judas was a part of the plan from the beginning. Look, most Christians know and are encouraged by Romans 8, 28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to to his purpose. <clears throat> Judas betraying Jesus was a part of God using evil to bring good about. God uses evil for good all the time. This is the whole idea of the story with Joseph at the end of Genesis. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, one thing I want to point out about Romans 8:28 is the encouragement found there in that verse, which is huge, right? That God's using all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes, that is for believers only. And so if there's an unbeliever, uh, you should not encourage them with Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is not for unbelievers. It is for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Those who love God are called according to his purposes should never be too discouraged. They should never despair. But this verse should not be given to encourage non-believers. But if you are in Christ, then you should know and be deeply encouraged that all things somehow are working together for good. And so you should never despair. You should always see the light of God's goodness at the end of whatever dark tunnel you find yourself in. And you can have confidence that if you knew what God knew, that you would choose the darkness for yourself too, because you would see the goodness on the other side of it would be worth it you would see the goodness would outweigh the bad. That's why Paul said, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. And look, I would imagine if the disciples would have known what was going on with Judas, if they would have known what he was up to, I bet they would have tried to stop him. I mean, wouldn't you imagine, like if they knew that Judas was sneaking off and he was going to go tell the authorities, that the disciples would have done something, they would have stopped him, they would have grabbed him, they would have tripped him up or whatever. But what if, what if you had a time machine, let's just say, and, and you go back and, you, and you're in the upper room with them and, and Judas is about to take off. And so you see what's happening. And, and then imagine that one of the disciples caught wind of what Judas was going to do and they want to go stop them. 
what would you do? What would you do if you were with one of the disciples who's like, I know what Judas is going to do. He's going to try to turn Jesus into authorities. We got to stop him. You know, well knowing the full story, what we should do is tell the disciples, let him go. Let Judas go. And they might respond and say, look, if Judas turns them in, they're going to kill him. And we would say, I know. Let Judas go. The disciples might say, look, there's a lot of momentum going right now. Really amazing things are happening. There's all these people are coming to Jesus. They're, they're, they're getting to know the true God. And if Jesus dies, all that goes away. You'd say, let Judas go. Let him go and do. No matter, no matter what argument the disciples might have, whatever good reason for Judas not turning Jesus in, and whatever good reason for keeping Jesus alive, whatever they would come up with, you would say, let Judas go. And this is what Jesus did in John 13. Read this. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus was saying, Judas, go ahead. Do what you're going to do. And the reason is, is because God uses evil for good. So he tells Judas, go ahead and do what you're going to do. Last Wednesday night, we looked at uh, William Cooper and some of his hymns. And one hymn in particular is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Um, one of the, the great verses in that hymn says this. It says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, Judas betraying Jesus, there hides a smiling face. Full payment for our sins. So when confronted with God's frowning providence in our lives, we need to remember that there is and there must be a smiling face behind it. God is working something together for our good. The evil work of Judas will work out for good. Jesus even told Judas to hurry up and do what you're going to do. God uses evil for good. It is important that we get this. We are all likely to, to need to remember this soon in our own lives. Now, let me have a third point here, if I can just ask this question. What can we learn from this, this whole scenario with everything going on with Judas here? Well, in, in 1 Peter 4, Peter writes that they shouldn't be surprised when they come across these fiery trials, when, when really bad things happen, when they're being persecuted. He says, don't be surprised about that. Now, I think in a similar way, as Christians, we need to be aware that sometimes people who call themselves Christians but are not, and sometimes Christians do really bad things. And we should not be surprised by that or have our faith shaken by that. And look, like I said, I could spend the rest of our time and, and I could do a summer series on people who have fallen, right? And, and there's going to happen in the future, there's going to be someone you know who does something awful. I hope and pray it's not me, but there's going to be somebody you know who does something awful and that should not rattle your faith. This is what the scriptures show us will happen. And sometimes Christians do really bad things 
And some of those people who call themselves Christians but are not genuine Christians do really bad things. And we need to know that Christians will do bad things. And sometimes those people who do bad things aren't really even Christians. In Matthew 13, we read about the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, depending on your translation. Uh, and Jesus talks about how good seed went out and bad seed went out. And so there's wheat and weeds are growing up together, and they mostly look the same. Um, and there, there's a, in the parable, they talk about, should we go and kind of try to rip out the, the weeds while the wheat's in there? And Jesus says, no, no, they just need to let it all grow together and it'll be sorted out at the end. And the idea is that uh, Christ, there will be non-Christians among the church, uh, and they will grow up together and they will be sorted out at the end of age. So all that to say, it should not surprise us if in the church there are weeds among the wheat. There, there will even be people involved in the life of the church, even leaders, who are not really Christians. And while in any particular case, uh, when an individual does something really bad, it might be shocking, right? Because of the individual we know and love or whatever, but the, the, the principle shouldn't surprise us. You hear what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is what we know is that there will be non-Christians involved in the life of the church, right? So that should happen, and every now and then it will show itself clearly, and that shouldn't surprise us in principle. Though it will be shocking, personally, in the particular situation, but it should, it should not shock us in general. And look, this is going to be especially true in, in a place like Mississippi, where, where the culture is majority Christians. And, and I feel like I should say this, uh, because a lot of you guys are, are like me, and you have a bit of a tender conscience, right? And at any, at any talk of, of doubting your salvation or the sincerity of, of your, your faith or anything, you think, that's me. He's probably talking about me. So, so let me say two things to that. First, if you believe the gospel, that you cannot be good enough for God, but that Jesus was good enough for you and that he died for your sins, paid the full penalty for your sins, and you desire to follow him rather than make peace with sin, then you have every reason to believe that you are truly a Christian, so you should be encouraged. Second, the scriptures do give several warnings about falling away from the faith. And this part can be really confusing because if you believe, as I do, that when someone is saved, when someone is in Christ, they can't lose their salvation. Or once you're in Christ, you can't be taken out of Christ. And so, so if you believe that, as I think you should believe that, the idea of being warned to not fall away from the faith might seem odd. But, but one of the ways that God keeps us from falling is by warning us not to fall. The book of Hebrews has five warnings to Christians to not fall away. And it's interesting, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes about how to become more confident in our salvation. He says this in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So he's saying be diligent to confirm your calling and election, or to con confirm that you are, in fact, saved. Then he says, if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. So he says, confirm your salvation, your election, your calling. If you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. And so what were these qualities? Well, if you go back a few verses in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 5, he says this. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, 
and brotherly affection with love. God will keep us to the end. If we make it to the end, it is because God will keep us. But part of his keeping us is calling us to real effort and diligence. Look, and, and I believe like once God has you, he has you. He's not going to lose you. Once you're in Christ, you can't be taken outside of Christ. But Christians can do really stupid things. I can do really stupid things, and you can do really stupid things. And we should be afraid of doing really stupid things. And without God keeping us, we're doing it today. <laughs> we're just not going to make it. Without God keeping us, we would all make a wreck of our lives and shipwreck our faith. So let's not put our hope in, any, in the faithfulness of any person, any organization, any church, any institution. And let's not be surprised or shaken too terribly when, when someone falls or fails miserably, whether, again, whether it's a person, an institution, or whatever it might be, because there's the, the, the people that the scriptures keep putting forward with the exception of Jesus, they're all failures. And so if we put our hope or are easily shaken by the failures of others, even those who are Christian leaders, then we are not on solid ground. So let's put our hope squarely on Jesus, who leverages evil for good, and will see us through to the end, as the song says, if we fear our faith might fail, he will hold us fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy on saving sinners like us. We are all vulnerable to sinning in ways that are uh, harmful to ourselves, to those around us, uh, and to hurting a lot of people. Father, would you keep us diligent to make real effort to not fall away, uh, to supplement our faith with virtue and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And would you help us to be faithful to the end? And we trust that you will keep us to the end. And Lord, we look squarely on you and hope in you for that. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.